evening to all of you. Uh, wonderful to be in God's house with you tonight. Some of you have already heard me talk in the past about my, my former life uh, as an English teacher, um, and I'm here to bring that up again. Not really. Um, but uh, as a former English teacher, uh, when, when writing a, a speech or when students were, were writing a paper or something for me, I would have to emphasize again and again, your paper needs a strong hook, okay? You want something that is going to reel in the attention of your readers so that they are captivated from moment one. And Matthew understood this when he was writing his gospel lesson. He wanted a, a really strong hook that was going to grab his reader's attention. So he sat down and he thought about it and he thought about it and he thought about it. And then he said, aha, I've got it. I'm going to start out my gospel of Jesus with a genealogy, with a long list of funny sounding names, right? Because nothing draws in a reader's attention quite like that, right? Well, maybe not for you and me, right? When we see that long list of names, it maybe is a little bit different for us. 21st century Christians might not connect quite as well to something like that. Um, and yet, if you were a first century Jew, as Jesus, as Matthew's initial audience was, this was something that you would use to hook an audience because they cared actually very, very deeply who your family was. In fact, they didn't really care so much about who you yourself were. They wanted to know, who are you related to? What kinds of people do you come from? What tribe of Israel are you a part of? The sum total of who you were was not so much uh, revolving around the things that you did in your life. Rather, who you were related to was what really kind of mattered. It was kind of like a resume, like a first century resume that Matthew provided here at the beginning of his gospel. Specifically, the resume of Jesus Christ the Messiah. And we find that in this first verse. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I'll admit to you that I've never actually had to write a resume in my life. Somehow I have skated through without ever having to do that once. Um, and yet I'm given to believe that when you are writing a resume, if there were some past employment experience that didn't go all that well, or some boss that maybe you didn't get along with all that great, you might conveniently forget to write about that on your resume, right? When you are uh, seeking employment from somebody else, you might just kind of hit the delete button on that section of your history. And actually, the, the first century Jews would do the same thing with their genealogies, with their family histories. If there were some embarrassing part of their family tree, if there were some embarrassing person or chapter in it, they would just kind of hit the delete button and forget that that person existed. Matthew, though, does something very, very different. He, he breaks every custom that he could have done in his genealogy because not only does he include some of the embarrassing chapters of Jesus' dysfunctional family history, he actually goes out of his way to highlight them, to point them out. He wants to make sure 
that we know about some of those embarrassing chapters in Jesus' family lineage. And we actually come upon one of these pretty much right away as he writes, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, a couple of things are interesting here, are are different. First of all, sorry, ladies, uh, but if you're a first century Jew, you don't list your female relatives in your genealogy. People just didn't so much care who your mother, who your great-grandmother was. They wanted to know who your daddy is, who your great-great-great-granddaddy is. And yet here, Matthew lists this woman, Tamar. Something else to know about Tamar, though, as Matthew is drawing our attention here, is that the story of Judah and Tamar in the Old Testament is so vile, so twisted, so evil and disgusting that we can't really talk about it in church because some of you have four-year-olds sitting next to you and there are certain words and concepts that you might not be ready to discuss with them yet. Suffice it to say that after reading about this story in Genesis 38, you will never look at the name Judah quite the same way ever again. And yet Matthew draws our attention to it. Going on, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashan, Nashan, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, not only is Rahab a woman that's being included in this genealogy, Rahab was also not a Jew. If you were an Israelite, if you were a Jew in the first century, you wanted to try to show that you had pure Jewish blood. Rahab, though, was a Canaanite woman. These were the enemies of the Jewish people when they came into the promised land. Little more to note about Rahab, though, is that she was known by a nickname, a nickname that had to do with her profession. And let's just say that it is a very old profession and leave it at that. And yet here is Rahab included in the family of Jesus. Okay, well, let's go on. We've got Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, another non-Jew, another Gentile. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Okay, so now we get to verse, thing, verse six, and we think, okay, David, David's a good guy to have in your genealogy. This is, this is a, a, a positive credential for Jesus, right? Matthew's not done yet. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, right? As he moves on to Solomon, he makes sure we know his mother had been the wife of this Uriah guy until David took her for himself. And that is a story that you know is full of adultery and conspiracy and murder and cover-ups. Matthew draws our attention to the worst of the worst in this genealogy. He, he purposely shows us just how dysfunctional Jesus' family tree is. And here's why. He wants us to know that Matthew came from a family of outsiders and sinners. There were racial outsiders in Matthew's family, people 
who were Gentiles by birth. There were also moral outsiders in his lineage, people, men and women whose lives contained some absolutely shocking stories. Matthew, make sure that you know about them, though. Why? It's because Matthew isn't only interested in telling the story of Christmas here. He's not just like relating the tale of Jesus. Matthew is also very interested in us understanding the purpose of that story. And really the purpose of that story has to do with the story of the entire human race. You see, back at the very beginning, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were, they were insiders. Their hearts, their desires, they were in line with God and his will, and God dwelt with them in a very present way in the Garden of Eden. But all of that changed the day that Adam and Eve ate from the tree that God commanded them not to eat from. They were expelled from Eden then. They were expelled from the presence of God. And ever since then, we've been outsiders. We do not live in Eden. We do not live in paradise and in the presence of God like Adam and Eve did. We are outsiders. The story of the human race isn't the story of God with us. It's the story of God apart from us away from us. But then we come through these thousands of years to Christmas, where the the story of Jesus Christ begins. The Messiah who came from the outsiders, for the outsiders. And for the guy who was writing this gospel, for Matthew, this was all deeply, deeply personal. And as we look at just a few verses from Matthew's life, we see not only why this was so personal to him, we also get a stronger grasp on what Christmas and Jesus and Emmanuel mean for us. So we're going to be jumping ahead, actually, to Matthew 9. This is a little bit later on in Jesus' life. He's not the little baby in the manger of Bethlehem anymore. He's a full-grown man. He's about 30 years old. And he is right at the height of his popularity at this time. When he goes into a house, people all flock around him. And not just inside the house, but around the house as well. He's like the number one celebrity in Israel. And that's the situation when we pick things up in Matthew 9, verse 9, which is really where Matthew is introduced in his own story that he's telling. So here in Matthew 9, verse 9, we read, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Okay, so Jesus had just gotten done healing a paralyzed man, actually, in front of a large crowd. And he's going along, he's going on his way. When he comes upon this Matthew guy sitting at his tax collector's booth, whatever that might have looked like, I'm not sure. What I do know is that this is bad. You see, Jesus lived during the time of the Roman occupation of Israel. And 
let's just say that the Jews at that time had a penchant for making things as difficult as possible for their Roman overlords. They had a very extreme streak of nationalistic pride in them. And so when Rome would try to send their own tax collectors into Israel, they would be mistreated or beaten up or, or worse. And so after a while, Rome couldn't really even get their own tax collectors to go and work in Israel. So somebody there in the capital had the brilliant idea, let's farm this work out to the locals. Essentially, Rome would decide how much, approximately how much a certain region was worth to them. And then these tax collectors would bid on the right to extract the taxes from the people there. They then would give Rome their cut and they would keep the leftovers, pretty hefty amounts usually. And so these tax collectors became so, so, so hated by their own people because they were seen as traitors. In fact, there was a group, a a religious sect in Israel called the Zealots, and they did not consider it murder to kill a tax collector. The rabbis and other Jewish leaders kind of sweepingly declared that all tax collectors were unclean, meaning they couldn't go to synagogue, they couldn't go to church. In fact, if you even did business with a tax collector... They could announce you unclean and you wouldn't be able to go to church either. Tax collector was the lowest bracket of sinner in the first century Jewish world. Well, now here comes Jesus right up to Matthew, caught red-handed in the vilest behavior in that society. Matthew wasn't just an outsider. Matthew was the worst of the outsiders. Now, there may be some of you in this room who feel kind of like Matthew, or at least maybe you have in the past. Like maybe there were some some long periods of your life where um, you didn't really have much to do with church or, or you didn't really have much to do with God because you had this overwhelming sense that you were an outsider, Maybe even the idea of going to church was intimidating to you because you felt like you just would not belong with all of those religious-looking people. Now, for others of you, that story might be quite different. Maybe you did grow up going to church. You were in the pews every Sunday, and, and yet maybe when you did, you came with this overwhelming sense of guilt and dread because you knew who you were. You knew the sins that stained you. And there are maybe even some of you that feel that way right now because of the sins and struggles that you have in your present. So can you imagine what it must have felt like to be Matthew as Jesus, celebrity number one in Israel, known for his love and his compassion and his dedication to God, comes and stands right beside you or right in front of you? I have to imagine that Matthew must just feel incredibly ashamed, incredibly out of place because he knows who he is. He's an outsider. And yet, what happens when Jesus comes to him there? Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. I mean, what happens here is just 
absolutely incredible. Jesus comes upon this tax collector, reviled by everyone around him, and says, Come with me. Where? Church? No, actually, we're going to go have dinner at your house, Matthew. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Right? Well, I guess when you're allowed, not allowed at church because you're a tax collector, who do you invite for dinner? You invite other tax collectors. You invite other sinners. You invite other people who can't go to church just like you. Well, now here are Jesus and his disciples, and they're like at a party with all of these people, these low lives of society. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the, tax, the, the Pharisees would not get too close to these types of people. They thought that if they came into too close of proximity, they would like catch the disease. They would contract whatever uncleanness those people had. And so what do they do? They call the disciples over to them. And they say, what is going on here? We won't even talk to these people. And here your teacher is, and he is sitting with them, and he's eating with them. He's getting to know about their lives. Doesn't he know that he's going to become unclean? We're the good guys. They're the bad ones. What's the deal with all of this? Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, Matthew and his friends could have been offended when they heard Jesus say this, but they weren't. Because when it comes to outsiders, we know who we are. We're sick. We're sinners. We don't even need a preacher beating us over the head with the Bible to tell us that. We know that we're outsiders with God. And Matthew and his friends knew this too. They had never had a religious guy like Jesus come and associate with them like this. And then here he is eating with them, reclining with them at their table. I mean, this must have just been so incredible for them because Jesus is not scared off by their uncleanness. He isn't scared off by their sin-sick souls or disgusted by them. No, Jesus, Jesus is happy and eager even to be with them and to help them. Well, now Jesus goes on speaking to those Pharisees and he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, right? You guys can go and make every sacrifice that you want and delude yourselves into thinking that that's what makes you right with God. I, I am here on a mission of mercy. I have come to reach out to the outsiders, You guys just don't get it. I have come for the tax collectors. I have come for people whose lives are so twisted and and, and messed up by sin that you won't even let them in church. You won't even let them in your synagogues. I have come for those who live outside of God's presence. And so here's your first key point this evening. Sinners aren't just a part of the Christmas story. They're the point of it. And so as Matthew, the tax collector, sits down to write his gospel history of Jesus, 
He knows that you need to hear about the Judas and the Tamars. He knows that you need to be aware of the Davids and the Bathshebas because they're the ones that Christmas is for. The people like Matthew, that's who Christmas is all about. Seven, eight hundred years before all of, before any of this happened, the prophet Isaiah spoke it like this. He said, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. We are all outsiders, spiritual outsiders. We all by nature live outside of Eden. We live outside of God's presence. Our sins stain us like blood. And yet through Jesus, we have forgiveness and mercy, not because of any great sacrifices that we make, but simply through the grace and love of Jesus who died in order to make your sins and mine as white as the the freshly fallen snow outside. So here's your other key point this evening. Jesus isn't contaminated by sinners, right? That's what those Pharisees were afraid of, that they would catch the disease. When Jesus comes into the picture, it works the other way around. The sinners are purified by Jesus. And so at the end of long genealogy, that Matthew puts before us, he brings us into that Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly, okay? Essentially, when Mary gets pregnant, Joseph knows that's not his baby. He very logically deduces from the fact that they haven't slept together yet that Mary must have been unfaithful to him. Now, in that culture, Joseph could have exposed Mary as an adulteress and really ruined her life. He had every right to do it. And yet Joseph was a good man, not a vindictive one. And so his plan was just to kind of quietly step away from all of this. Well, going on, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Right? This isn't the doing of adultery. This is the doing of God, Joseph. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins, right? Jesus will not be infected by the sins. He will not be contaminated by the sinners of the world around him. Instead, the sinners are healed. They are cleansed. They are purified as they come into contact with Jesus, right? He isn't scared off by you. Whatever the sins of your past may look like, whatever the sin of your present that you struggle with might look like, Jesus is not scared off He is not afraid to come and and make contact with you. Rather, that's exactly why he comes. Because he knows that by contact with him, you and me, sinners and outsiders, are cleansed. And what does that mean for us? Let's finish the reading. All this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Christmas is not the story of God apart from us. No, Christmas is the story of Emmanuel, of God with us. Because you are washed clean in the blood of Jesus, you are no longer shut out from Eden. That is to say that you and I are no longer shut out from the presence of our God. We couldn't come to him. And so God in his love and his grace and his mercy has come to us. In the birth of Jesus, that Christ child at Bethlehem, God is with us. But he didn't just come then so that there would be 33 years during Jesus' physical life while God was, that God would be with us. No, it was so that through Jesus' life and through his death and through his resurrection, God is with us eternally. Amen. Thank you.